0: Hello, hello, everyone, and welcome to episode number 17 of Unformidable. I'm Rob Wolf, and here at Unformidable, we take a look at some of the less heralded Mets in our beloved franchise's quirky history, as every player who dons the orange and blue is, in their own way, Unformidable. 17 is, of course, an auspicious number for New York Mets fans, for the great Keith Hernandez, and it will play a role in today's podcast that number uh, very in a very serendipitous manner, as I'll get to later on for today's uh, subject, War Number Seventeen, in a notable way. But before we get into today's subject, I'd like to thank Brian Salvador for upholding our fine, unformidable traditions, from my RuPaul via Dorothy's Bornak opening to my cheesy opening line to uh, what's hopefully the high quality of Unformidable podcasts, which uh, Brian did with aplomb. In fact, I'd like to not thank Brian for making it look so easy and effortless and being so damn charming and probably making me look kind of bad, uh, although catching it with that velvet glove of his and Allison's kind praise of the show as is. Uh, So welcome back to Unformidable with Rob Wolf. We hope you all enjoyed the podcast swap last week. We all, I think, enjoyed it a great deal. It was fun to get fresh perspectives and takes on things. I was delighted to listen to Brian's adroit and personal memories of Richard Hidalgo. It was great because when we discussed the concept of the podcast, I think that was one of the first players Brian mentioned to me. He's like, Richard Hidalgo would be a good one. So I'm glad I hadn't gotten to him yet and Brian got to enjoy that. I, for my own part, uh, really love being able to participate in From Complex to Queens, which every week gives me such a great information and perspective on the future Mets uh, hopefully future Met stars more often than not future Met unforgettable unformidable candidates but it's good for me to be back to what I know and love talking about which is the Mets past because hopefully it can distract us from the Mets present unless you were one of the few suckered in by that four game winning streak uh, the past is where we can find our few bright spots as Met fans, or unfortunately more likely look for analogs and memories to of our from our painful past to coincide with our painful present. With the Padres coming to town this week, I'm actually planning to attend a couple of games out at City, at least in part because I'm very excited to see in person one Fernando Tatis Jr., an electric 20-year-old shortstop who currently has a 3.2 F4 over the first 64 games of his MLB career. Now I think someday when I'm old and foggy, uh, Fernando Tatis Jr. will probably go into a giant mixed-up cauldron with Mookie Betts and Xander Bogarts where I'll think, oh, the Mets could have got that guy if, if they traded him for Matt Harvey or Noah Syndergaard, which is probably not remotely realistic, especially for Tatis in the way the teams value prospects. But, you know, it's just interesting. I, I think I, that... uh you know, there was always a a conversation, I think more so the Red Sox and the Cubs matching up with all those young starters, and, you know, DeGrom aside, it probably would be really nice to get one of those young future stars uh, on the offensive side of the ball, but Fernando Tatis Jr. will not be a Met, not now, and probably not when he becomes a free agent, because the team probably still won't be shelling out for superstars, but he was once traded for James Shields, so anything is possible in baseball. But this very long segue is to let you know that Fernando Tatis Jr. put me in mind of a random Met with a brief tenure that I personally remember quite fondly, and actually was award winning. So despite it being rooted primarily in a season that was fun, but did not quite live up to expectations, sound familiar, Met fans, and even if it looks like he's about to get griffied and largely be remembered as the father to a junior seemed to me like a good time to look back at the unformidable tenure of fernando tatis senior at the age of 17 fernando tatis senior was signed as an amateur free agent by omar minaya for the texas rangers it's the last not the last time you'll hear omar's name in this podcast i'm afraid clearly a fan and uh, as I learned in doing research for this podcast, someone who Tatis actually kind of looked at as a foster father type figure, uh, uh, Manaya inherited Tatis in Montreal when he took over the Expos in 2002 and obviously signed him to play for the Mets in the, actually in the 2006 offseason, signed him to the Mets organization. I believe Tatis was considered a pretty big prospect. Um, <clears throat> I mean, that was a long time ago, and I'm basing that a lot on how highly he went and rotisserie drafts when I was young but uh, looking at his minor league stats kind of backed that up for me because at age 22 he had a 966 OPS in AA Tulsa in the Rangers organization 24 homers and 17 stolen bases and I think was regarded as a good third baseman and he actually made the jump straight from AA to the majors making his MLB debut in July 1997 in the young third baseman he held his I mean definitely below league average, but given his young age, probably didn't embarrass himself, put up a seventy-eight OPS over his first half a season of professional ball. Tatis started ninety-eight as the Rangers primary third baseman and struggled to live up to his prospect billing at first for a team that was expected to and did contend. The Rangers were locked in a battle with the Anaheim Angels for the American League West. I think they were the Anaheim Angels in ninety eight. And the St. Louis Cardinals took advantage of a rare down-ish year. And down-ish the way the Yankees have down years. I think they finished like eighty-three and seventy-nine. But the Astros were running away with the NL Central and the Cubs, Giants, and yes, our New York Mets were far ahead in the wildcard chase. So the Cardinals were rare sellers at the deadline and sent Royce Clayton and Todd Stottlemyre to the Rangers, with Fernando Tatis being the main piece coming back, along with another um, potential unformidable candidate, Darren Oliver. Uh, So that was the deadline trade, uh, Tatis and Oliver, for Royce Clayton and Todd Stottlemyre. And wouldn't you know that Tatis flourished almost immediately with the Cardinals, as players often seem to with that bizarre Cardinals devil magic. At the time of the trade, he had three home runs, a 664 OPS and a 70 OPS plus in 95 games for the Rangers. The end of the 98 season, over 55 games with the Cardinals, he hit eight home runs, stole seven bases, had an 872 OPS and a 127 OPS plus. So there you have a highly regarded prospect, seemed poised to blow up the following season, and wouldn't you know it, he actually did. Over the course of his career... Tatis recorded a 6.4 F-War. He recorded a 3-War F-War in 1999 alone. That season he hit 34 home runs, which is more than a third of his career total, drove in 107, slashed 298, 404 on base percentage, 553 slugging, stole 21 bases to boot. But what Fernando Tatis is probably mostly known for in his major league career, sadly it's not on the Mets, but we'll get to that, are two of those 34 home runs. I think you all know where we're going now. But on April 23rd of 1999, the Cardinals visited Los Angeles to take on the Dodgers. Jose Jimenez matched up against Chanho Park of the Dodgers. The Dodgers took a... Quick 2-0 lead through two innings, thanks to sacrifice flies from Gary Sheffield and Todd Hunley. I love the all the Met names that can be dropped in this podcast. And they both hit sacrifice flies, so the Dodgers are hit 2-0, going to the third. And in the top of the third, the first three Cardinals reach base, single, hit by pitch, single, loading the bases for cleanup hitter Fernando Tatis, who promptly went yard, hit a 450-foot bomb for a grand slam. Nine batters later... Ho Park was somehow still pitching, and the bases were loaded once again. And Fernando Tatis was up once again, and he homered once again. To this day, Tatis remains the only player to hit two grand slams in one inning, which is an incredibly amazing feat in its own right. I think I find it even more amazing that poor Ho Park had to stay in the game all of those batters and face him again by the by the way Dodger manager was Davey Johnson that day another fun Met reference and uh apparently Davey did not see fit to take John Ho Park out when uh, facing the batter who had already homered off him the previous inning and after for, for about like his 14th batter of the inning or something all in all in that inning the Cardinals scored 11 runs on six hits two walks a hit batter a batter reaching on a fielder's choice, another batter on an error. All eleven base runners scored. Eight of them knocked in by Fernando Tatis, which obviously is a record for one inning. A couple amusing anecdotes I found in researching that game: that uh, Vin Scully, after the game, said that when he came up the second time, he didn't even bother looking in the record book because he couldn't believe anybody could have ever hit two grand slams in an inning. He he declared it. I don't know how you could compare it to anything. One inning is so preposterous, and it kind of is. And in an article on the on the game, uh, Tom Verducci uh, noted that actually Chanhoe Park was not the only pitcher to give up two grand slams in an inning. A pitcher named Woe Bill Phillips gave up two grand slams in the same inning on August 16th, 1890 for the Pittsburgh Alleghenies against the Chicago Colts. I've never heard of either of those teams, so it doesn't seem like that should count, but it was obviously not to the same batter in that game. At the time of the accomplishment, Tatis was the 10th major leaguer to hit two grand slams in a single game, the 20th to homer twice in the same inning, but obviously the first to hit two grand slams in one inning, and still is. So his place in history was made, but not yet his place in Mets history, so let's get to that. It would be a long and mostly painful road for Tatis after that. He had that incredible 99 season and actually got off to a pretty good start in 2000, but injuries really began to derail his career at that point. Uh, shoulder, leg. He was limited to 96 games in 2000 and traded to the Montreal Expos in the offseason. season. Uh, he spent three years in the Expos organization, but in those three seasons, he only played 208 games due to a wide assortment of injuries. After that, Aside from 28 games with the Orioles in 2006, uh, Fernando Tatis disappeared from the major leagues from 04 to 07, uh, with the Rays, Orioles, Dodgers, and Mets organizations, but uh, a, a slew of injuries and a lot of struggles when he was healthy, uh, proving that he should be out of the minors, kept him out of the majors. So as noted, he actually, the, Omar Minaya signed him in 2007. And he spent the year in AAA with the Mets and began playing the outfield as a way to hopefully show some versatility and make his way back to the majors. And it would prove to be that. Uh, Tatis would make it back to the show in 2008. And not quite the success of one Robert Allen Dickey. He wound up being another nice, keen little veteran reclamation project for Omar and for the New York Mets. Fernando Tatis made his MIT debut on May 13, 2008, getting called up from AAA. He appeared as a pinch hitter in that game, singled, scored a run, and kind of didn't look back that year. Uh, As the year went on, the aging Moises Alou and the concussed and poorly handled Ryan Church struggled pretty mightily with injuries, so Tatis began to receive and really earn a, a lot of regular playing time in the corner outfield spots. On a very personal note, I went to more Met games in 2008 than any season, 18 in total, I know this, uh, if I haven't mentioned this on the pod before, thanks to my obsessive-compulsive ticket stub collection back when I was a kid, well, obviously into when I was an adult, and the Excel spreadsheet that I converted it into, now that getting ticket stubs is not always feasible, sadly. But, you know, while I was very excited about the new stadium appearing in the skyline behind the left-center field fence, yeah, I was really, really sad to see Shea go. It was, of course, bittersweet, I think, for any Met fan for most of us and I wanted to be there as much as possible so I actually got a season ticket plan and for that last season and you know before the very bitter end of Shea Stadium in that last game Fernando Tatis certainly provided several fine memories that season and a couple of them I was there for. So just a couple of Tatis highlights from 2008. The team struggled early in the year uh, people, I don't think, you know, I think people lumped 2007-2008 together, and obviously they poked ahead in 2008 and then, you know, lost it the last week of the season. But uh, they didn't really lead wire to wire like in 2007. They actually made, had a great uh, stretch run in July-August to really get back into the playoff race. So in late May, the team was under 500, and was facing the Marlins at Shea in a 12-inning game. And Alfredo Amazaga hit a home run in the top of the 12th to give the Marlins a 6 5 lead. And it looked like it would drop the Mets to 24 and 27. But the team rallied in the bottom of the 12th. A David Wright leadoff walk, a Carlos Beltran single, and with one out, Fernando Tatis came up, doubled deep to left center, scoring right and a streaking Beltran to give the Mets a 7 6 win and what was uh, Tatis's first career walk off hit. Again, until very late September, I remember Shea being an incredibly exciting place to be in 2008, with over 4 million people visiting in its final season, and I remember another game in early August, when the Mets were kind of starting to streak uh, this August 5th against the Padres, who again will be in town this week with Mr. Tatis' son, where Tatis, again not not quite single-handedly, but uh, hit two home runs, accounting for all four Mets. Runs. I hit a a big three-run homer in the sixth inning to give the Mets a 4-2 lead, and I remember being way up in the upper deck and Shea being rocking, and it was uh, just a a delightful, delightful moment, and really a moment for me where I was like, I, you know, can't believe signing this guy has paid such dividends, and you know, like it seemed like another one of those cheap, stupid Met moves, and here he was helping support the right Beltron uh, Reyes core of the team and contributing so mightily. Of course, in an eerie portent of things to come, the Mets almost blew a 6-2 lead in the ninth in that game, barely holding on for a 6-5 win in a season, which, stop me if you've heard this before, the Met bullpen would really help short-circuit a good team. Fernando Tatis would actually separate his shoulder late in the 2008 season. On September 16th, uh, diving for a fly ball, I think it was in right field against the Nationals, uh, ending his season. And, you know, uh, really it was pitching down the stretch, although some of the key hitters really slumped and probably could have used the veteran uh, who was just having a great 2008 season. So great that uh, for his efforts, he won the Comeback Player of the Year Award in the National League. Uh, at, you know, not the most grandiose numbers. He 11 homers, 47 RBIs. Uh, he hit two ninety seven, slugged four eighty four. 853 OPS yeah I would think very much for his contributions but also for making it back and persevering after so much lost time to injury uh Fernando Tatis won comeback player of the year as a New York Met I didn't really remember this as well but he actually had a pretty decent 2009 with the Mets as well receiving a good bit of playing time late in the year due to due in part at least to unfortunate circumstances when uh, David Wright suffered his concussion, getting plunked in the head by Matt Cain, the 93-mile-per-hour fastball, and went on the disabled list for, I think, the first time in his career. Tatis, who, you know, had been shuffling around the outfield, pinch-hitting, returned to regular playing time at his old home of third base with the future captain injured. Uh, he did fight injuries of his own that year, Tatis, but he played a lot, particularly late in the year, put up a respectable... 106 OPS+ plus in 2009, over 125 games and 340 at-bats. He actually recorded a higher WAR in 2009, uh, 1.5 versus 1.3 in 2008, perhaps in part because of his improved uh, his comfort at his uh, natural home of third base. He struggled very badly in 2010, and what played what wound up being his last major league game in a Met uniform on the Fourth of July, 2010. He got hurt, missed the rest of that season with injury, and kind of went back to the 2003 2007 paradigm, where he this time he played in the Dominican Winter League and the Mexican Leagues from 2011 to 2014, but never really got another call to the majors and officially announced his retirement after the 2014 season. As a Met, Fernando Tatis hit 279. He had an o- OPS of 790 and an OPS Plus of 109 he appeared in 258 games, 678 at bats, and recorded a 2.7 war according to FanGraphs. For his whole entire baseball career, he had 265 with 113 homers and 448 RBIs. He in January 2018, he joined the Red Sox organization as manager of one of their Dominican uh, rookie level Dominican League teams. Two final interesting Tatis anecdotes, at least I thought. He's actually a third-generation baseball player. His father uh, was a professional player, Fernando Tatis, as well. He was an infielder in the Astros system who made it as high as AAA. And he actually he disappeared from Fernando Tatis's life when he was four and omar Manaya, who you know i probably would not speak as kindly about in some other situations uh you know as i said really tatis described him as a father figure and helped when he was a ranger scout search for tatis's father and reunite them there's a great times article uh that i'll have to tweet out that murray chass wrote about the search and the reunion of tatis and his father so it's really a, a you know a whole generation a whole family there, the Tatises uh, in baseball, and you know it's looking very much like Fernando's son will be the best of them all. And it's, it's a really great article, and I would check it out. And finally, as I noted, Fernando Tatis wore uniform number 17 here in episode 17 of Unfathomable. He was actually the last New York Met to wear a uniform 17. Uh, you know, it, it, as I read on wikipedia online it was taken out of circulation for keith hernandez due to public outcry although you know i feel like there was public outcry basically for years about the number of people who wore 17 the least of which was not from keith himself so i don't know if it was maybe keith announcing and bitching about it uh if you go online and look up the mets who were number 17 uh, i looked it up on the ultimate mets database which is a fun online resource for met fans i think you should see some of the names who wore uniform number 17. I mean, aside from, you know, David Cohn wearing it in support of, I think kind of an honor of Keith and Brett Saberhagen, uh, Fernando might be the best player to have worn 17 since Keith. It's it's quite a, quite a rogues gallery, quite a, quite a list of people who would probably be perfect for this podcast. So it was interesting to me that he was the last and that they took it out of uh, circulation after, Tatis, although that's been 10 years now, and no one has worn 17, but the Mets have taken no further action on that aside from taking it out of circulation, so uh, what's up with that? At any rate, that's probably the subject for another podcast or discussion, but I hope you enjoyed these reminiscences of the unformidable Fernando Tatis. Thank you very much for listening to Unformidable. Please go to AmazonAvenue.com for more Mets-related content, follow amazing avenue on facebook twitter instagram you can find this and all of our amazing pods wherever you get your podcasts please subscribe and leave a review it really helps original music by bunga i'm on twitter at wolfrr, and the show is at Unformatable. thank you and as always let's go next.